Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hello there, listeners. Hello there, universe. Hello, world. It's me, Rain Wilson, here with my partner in existential crime. I'm Reza Aslan. I am your partner in existential crime. And we are here to talk about a particular kind of existential crime. We're going to talk about loneliness. How to fight loneliness. (laughs) Whether you should even fight it. What's wrong with being lonely? There's a lot that's wrong with being lonely, as we'll soon discover. We're going to find out. This is the topic that we thought we would dig into. Loneliness. Is it a universal? Are we meant to be lonely? Are we destined to be lonely? Does everyone feel lonely? I would actually seriously wonder if there are people out there that have never felt loneliness. I doubt that there's anyone that has never felt it. I think if you can say to yourself that you've never felt loneliness, then you are kidding yourself. Like There is something psychologically wrong with you. But this comes to the the core question, right? Which is, what's the difference between loneliness and being alone? Or loneliness and solitude, and solitude. maybe? Because solitude is, can be a really beautiful thing. It can be creative. You can get in touch with nature and the universe and the, the cosmic consciousness. I mean, have you, okay, let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt truly lonely? And I don't mean like, lonely as a positive force, you know, yeah. where you're like, I'm going to take this moment to to dig into the depths of my soul Loneliness, and find out who I am. solitude, but yeah, like... like actual, like, loneliness. Yes, I have depth, felt loneliness, loneliness several times in my life. I think one time I felt intense loneliness was, I was living in Seattle. I was just starting to go to the University of Washington. I was driving a truck for Ballard Marine Supply Hardware and... Uh, my dad and stepmom had gotten a divorce. I was living in my dad's basement and I didn't really know. I only knew two or three people that I had gone to high school and junior high school in the area. I didn't know a whole lot of people and I felt very angsty and extremely lonely and bereft for months. 19, I was 19. Yeah. So I was older, but it was also a university setting. Okay. Yeah, I was, uh, I was getting a degree. And uh, I was living in, you know, student housing and uh, I was living with my girlfriend slash fiance. You were getting your PhD. I was getting my PhD. Just say it. Say you were getting, you can own that. I was getting one of my multiple, multiple (laughs) degrees that indicate the vast level of my intelligence. You know, I felt lonely before, but like the kind of crushing sense of loneliness that was the first time I ever experienced it because I had moved in to this, you know, campus housing with my fiance and uh, within a week she had cheated on me oh. and yeah, and left and was like, was very matter of fact about it too. It was just kind of like, what? so I'm going to go and live with this other guy now. And I was like, oh, what? well that sucks. If I think back on it now, it wasn't just like depression. Obviously I was depressed, but it was like this 
full body loneliness experience. I started having panic attacks for the first time in my in my life where I couldn't wow. breathe. Yep. I didn't even know what, what they were. Like, I didn't even know what a panic attack was. You thought you were I having just, a heart attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. That's, that happened I thought to me I was as well. Yeah. I think part of it had to do with the fact that I had this idea of what my future was going to be with this woman. Mm-hmm. And then she left. And then suddenly I couldn't see the future anymore. Hmm. It was like a cosmic loneliness. It wasn't sort of literal, I'm lonely right now. It was like, I will be lonely forever. I don't see an end right. to this loneliness. Right. It's not a coincidence that both of us felt our loneliest in the kind of university, college right. setting. There's this, uh, you know, uh, study that came out from, you know, this health health group, Cigna. We all know Cigna. Cigna. Um, and they issued this report that basically said the loneliest generation in the United States. Yep. Not the oldest Americans, right? Not the the, the And it's traditionally generation. been the oldest it's traditionally Americans. Been, yeah, the old the yes. loneliest people are over 75 or 80 yes, or something. Certainly yeah. in America, because yeah. that's what we do with our old yeah, people. We put we them out sh- to pasture. Shuffle them off into yeah. and let other people take care of them until they finally die. No, it's not the oldest Americans. It's some of the youngest. Specifically the young adults between 18 and 22 years old, they are the loneliest generation in America. That's incredible. And these are college kids. But listen, this is an epidemic around the country. And there's a special guest that uh, we really wanted to bring in, dear listeners, uh, Varun Soni, who is the university chaplain, dean of religious life at USC. I was having a conversation because I spoke there a couple months ago at USC, and he was talking about this epidemic of loneliness anxiety, uh, depression, suicidal ideation that's rampant on college campuses. We thought, well, there's a universal question in here about the nature of humanity and loneliness, but he's been experiencing it. He is on the front lines on the fight against loneliness. Yeah. You know, funny story, uh, Varun and I actually went to graduate school together um, at a small liberal arts school in Boston. Well, not really Boston, in Cambridge uh, on the East Coast. Uh, school starts with an H. It's not a big deal. Anyway. Um, we, Haverford? Ha- that's it. Haverford, okay. Haverford College. If anybody's familiar with Cambridge, very white, very white uh, city. This campus was also very white. And we were two brown people, similar height, both had goatees back then. It was the nineties. Sure. Everybody had so, a goatee. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't just me. Even, we all, even we third all had eye goatees. blind had goatees. It, it was a goatee time. Yeah. Everywhere we would go, people would confuse us for the other. Like people would come <laughs> up to me and have full conversations with me as though I were Varun and vice versa. And it makes me think of two things. Number one, goddamn Boston is fucking racist. And number two, <laughs> it was this weird thing where like neither of us ever felt lonely. Because we kind of had this weird bond with each other. Like he would literally come to me. I remember once he came to me and he's like, here's your Radiohead CD back. And I was like, why do you have it? He said, I don't know. Some guy gave it to me because he thought I was you. <laughs> I was like, we have this connection here. That's fantastic. So please, uh, let's, let's bring on my friend, your friend, Dr. Varun Sony. Mm-hmm. 
My name is Varun Soni. I'm the Dean of Religious and Spiritual Life at the University of Southern California, which means I'm basically the university's chaplain. You said the first several years you were there, there were kind of one set of issues that you were hearing from students about. And then that kind of shifted. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. When I got there, uh, I had the hopes and dreams conversations. The reason I wanted to be a university chaplain is I had these extraordinary conversations with my university chaplain when I was an undergraduate. I used to go talk to him about what does it mean to be human? How do I live an extraordinary life? How do I translate my values into action? What matters to me? Why does it matter to me? These are questions that make us human. They connect us with everyone who's ever lived through space and time. And when I got to SC, those are the conversations I had, the hopes and dreams conversations. Students were really excited about their life, their education. They wanted to go out and change the world and change themselves. But over the last five or six years, I noticed a really troubling, uh, sort of trajectory in those pastoral conversations. Instead of asking me, how should I live? Students began to ask me, why should I live? When did that start? About five or six years ago, about the time when we started transitioning between Gen Y and Gen Z. I don't want to say this is purely a generational trend, but I have seen a noticeable difference between these cohorts of students. Sometimes these are students who are younger brothers and sisters of millennials. They were born in the same household, raised in the same environment, born of the same parents, same nature same nurture, same family, same school. And yet within this five or six year period, which defines this generational shift, uh, we began to see a lot more despair, a lot more hopelessness, uh, a lot more depression, anxiety. So I thought it was me. I thought maybe I'd been on (laughs) campus long enough (laughs) that students were finding me in a way that they hadn't found me before. But when I talk to counselors, chaplains around the country, and especially when you look at the data, it's not just what I see. Uh, it's There's no doubt that things are getting worse and not better in terms of stress, anxiety, and depression. One third of our students are wrestling with some kind of mental health issue. 60% of college students are suffering from overwhelming and crippling levels of anxiety. I got half my medical students who are having trouble taking care of themselves. These are the future caregivers of tomorrow. And uh, every year it seems to get worse. What do you think is happening? I mean, is it just um, the world is changing? I mean, some fundamental ways. I mean, we talk a lot about how it seems like the world is increasingly sucking. Do you know what I mean? Like (laughs) every year the suck factor of the world increases just a little bit more. I imagine if I was in that generation and I was looking at the way in which, you know, the generations before me had completely and totally fucked the environment yeah. uh, and that I was looking, you know, to, to a life that looked more like, uh, you know, a scene from Dune than anything else, yeah. uh, I would be depressed too. I mean, yeah. is that, is that? I think something? there's certainly that, right? 2008, I became the university's chaplain as a Hindu, right? That's never happened before in American history. How did it happen? Well... 2008 was a good time to be a kid oh, with a funny name. The, there the was hope and change days. in the air, yeah. right? Students were excited about Reza Barack Aslan, Obama, right? Yeah. Like it was really good for us, actually, it was, and it was, it was good. good for students. Even Rain Wilson <laughs> has its own kind of yeah. indeterminate ethnicity behind it. Oh, That's is right. he from Finland? That's right. <laughs> So I think there's that. We are living in the age of anxiety and outrage generally. So, of course, that's going to be filtered onto college campuses. Anxiety and and outrage. That's good. I'm going to use Mm -hmm. that. There is, uh, you know, there are policies in place that impact college students, whether it be high tuition, whether it be DACA, whether it be Muslim travel ban, all those things impact Mm -hmm. college students immediately. So there is that. But I don't think it's just that. Mm -hmm. I think there are other trends that are at play here that specifically impact Generation Z 
that haven't impacted previous generations? Well, one of those is if we're looking at timelines, and you're talking about this starting five or six years ago, five or six years ago was the advent of young people using Instagram mm -hmm. and diving into the Instagramification of America. And I don't want to be one of these grumpy old men that blames everything on social media, but I think we have to look at that. Get off my web. <laughs> you kids. Get, get. You kids with your selfies and your Snapchats and your triangle bikinis. That's, I think that's a big thing. Listen, these are digital natives. At least millennials were born into a world and migrated to this technology. Right. These are kids who were born and raised entirely in an online social world. Our kids essentially are part of this generation. We see it firsthand in sort of our parenting. And so these are kids who have always talked with their thumbs and not with their tongues. These are kids who uh, have had their most intense social experience transpire online. That makes a big difference. For 50,000 years, our species has been talking like we're talking right now. But we're telling these kids, hey, this is a whole new way of communicating, a whole new way of being a community, a whole new way of developing a tribe. Let's see what happens. We're in some ways guinea-pigging these kids on these technologies, and we're beginning to see what that looks like uh, in terms of a longitudinal perspective. I mean, this is a little bit of my grumpy old man coming out, but I kind of feel like this is the grand social experiment that people will be talking about 100 years from now. Kind of like, remember that generation that when they were two and a half, we gave them iPads mm -hmm. at a restaurant so we wouldn't have to kind of deal with them like spilling water on the table and whatnot, and we just let electronic devices raise these children, and they were on Instagram when they were 12, and they had phones when they were nine. Um, and now they've processed our bodies for uh, energy and sustenance. Uh, <laughs> and and they, feed, they feed off our corpses now. Remember those kids? <laughs> Remember those kids. That those got kids? really dark. And they, really live fast. <laughs> and they live forever. That got like post-Matrix <laughs> Skynet kind of instantly. I love that about you, Reza. But... Um, but yeah, and I think they'll look back and be like, that was insane. That was crazy that we took these children and their developing brains and we just put electronics in their hands willy-nilly without any checks or balances on it whatsoever. What's fascinating is that you're in contact with all these kids all the time. And by the way, we should mention that USC is a gigantic school. Yeah. Like it's not just a... So you have a pretty big... 50,000 students. Yeah. yeah. So you have a fairly large 140 uh, countries, yeah. 50 states, you know, and you're very seeing diverse them, community. And so this is a global phenomenon. You're seeing it... You know, regardless of race or class. Or I see that on my campus, and yeah. I assume that's true across higher education. Yeah. yeah, I don't see stress, anxiety, and depression. Of course, every person has unique histories, perspectives, and identities that play into how they navigate their own mental or spiritual health. But when you're talking about suicidal ideation or depression, uh, it's an equal opportunity offender. Uh, I see it across socioeconomic status, across uh, national origin, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. OneSkin is a longevity company led by a team of five PhDs developing solutions to prevent, slow down, and reverse aging. OneSkin harnesses the science of aging to develop products that extend the length of time that skin is healthy and youthful. OneSkin's topical supplement is a daily moisturizer powered by their proprietary peptide OS1, the first peptide scientifically proven to reduce the biological age of skin. Milkshakers, skin care is health care. It's true. Comprehensive wellness should include your largest organ. Insert joke here. No, it's skin. <laughs> One skin's priority is to keep your skin healthy in order to keep your body healthy. 
The outstanding beauty benefits are a consequence of a healthy skin. One Skin is designed for anyone who cares about aging at their best health. And that means men too. After all, we should care again about the health of our what, Reza? Of our biggest organ. That's right. And I, by the way, I honestly, I, I swear I just used One Skin like 17 minutes ago. I took a shower right before this podcast record because I was all greasy. And it is, it is delightfully light and saturating on my face. I did notice that you look remarkably youthful today. Yeah, I look 37. So, um, <laughs> well, thank you, OneSkin. I've really enjoyed your product. So visit oneskin.co slash milkshake and use the code milkshake and you'll get 15% off your first purchase. Now, the code applies to one-time purchases and the first order of subscription purchases. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N, oneskin, dot C-O slash milkshake. And use the code milkshake for 15% off your first purchase. You got lots of pets, right, Rain? I have too many pets, Reza. So you know, pets are part of the family. Well, Fuzzy knows there's nothing that compares to coming home to a wiggle butt or waking up to soft purrs and that we want to keep our pets healthy and make them as happy as they make us. So Fuzzy, folks, is a telehealth service for pet parents that offers 24-7 access to personalized pet care from veterinary professionals. From everyday questions to middle-of-the-night emergencies, Fuzzy has the answers pet parents need through live chat and virtual vet consultations available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Fuzzy can answer your pet questions, big and small, urgent, and every day. They can also recommend the exact right products for your pet, all of which are hand-picked by their established team of veterinary professionals and available at discounts exclusive to Fuzzy members. So from getting your pet's diet just right to meeting their middle-of-the-night needs to finally figuring out what makes their breath smell that way. <sighs> for my dog, it's because he eats his own poop. Nothing is too big or small for a quick Fuzzy call. So right now, Fuzzy is offering our listeners a free seven-day trial plus 20 bucks off your first purchase of vet-recommended pet meds, supplements, treatments, and more. All you got to do is go to yourfuzzy.com and use promo code META to get started. That's a free seven-day trial plus 20 bucks off your first purchase at Y-O-U-R-F-U-Z-Z-Y, yourfuzzy.com, using promo code META. That's yourfuzzy.com, promo code META. And what's fascinating is you seem to have kind of boiled all of these anxieties and emotions and and everything down to sort of this one fundamental feeling that you're tracking in these kids, and that is loneliness, that they're all just lonely. They're really, really lonely. They're so lonely. How does that come across? Like, how how does loneliness come across in a... How does it manifest? How How do you hear about it? So, I'll give you an example. Uh, We just built this $800 $800 million dorm, essentially. Um, University Village, 2,200 beds. Uh, and the whole idea was the architecture would create a kind of community. The way we set it up, people would be in community with each other. And the other day, a student comes to me and says, our brand new dining hall, this stunning new dining hall, uh, can we have a table where people talk to each other? And I was like, isn't that the whole dining hall? Isn't that what the dining hall is? Isn't that what a cafeteria is? Exactly. And he says, have you been to the dining hall recently? I'm like, no. He's like, if you go to the dining hall, this is a freshman, pretty self-aware. If you go to the dining hall, you will see everyone on their phones. 
and no one has permission to talk to each other. Everyone's sitting by themselves on their phone. So his idea was let's create a table. A phone-free table. Where people are phone-free. Mm. Where student ambassadors facilitate conversations over meals. Where people have permission to talk to each other. And I'm like, are we seating the rest of the dining hall to non-talking then? This seems like a lot of work for what should be an organic conversation. I'll go to your fucking school. And I will sit at the conversation table. Reza, you and I can go sit at the conversation table and be like, put your phones away. Let's have a conversation. I will spearhead that movement. I love that. Will they even know how to talk is the question. Will they just sit there and be like, "Um, so... How many likes do you have on your, on your Instagram it's, You know, it's not like, it's, it's not, it? I, what, what I'll say about Gen Z is they are very self-aware. Mm-hmm. They are also trying to be part of the solution, even though they realize that they're kind of in crisis. There are all sorts of amazing student leaders who are kind of tackling these issues on their respective college campuses. But we are, we've got a class on friendship now. I'm, I'm on a campus with Nobel Prize winners, with MacArthur Genius Grant winners, with Pulitzer Prize winners, and the one class that, I decided to teach was Friendship 101. <laughs> like how to make a friend? How to make yeah, a how friend. How do you teach Wait, friendship? I wanna, yeah, please help me. So <laughs> I'm not teaching the class. We direct, We have yeah. someone who's teaching it for yeah. us. But it's, you know, it's kind of basic social skills. You know, how to read social cues. How to uh, have eye contact. How to uh, be present in a conversation. How to ask good questions. This you know? is astonishing to me. This is astonishing. Like but you here, get course credits. This class is not for credit, and yet the waiting list is so long, we can't keep up with the demand. Okay, yeah, you can talk about a lot of different things that are going on that are causing these these uh, anxieties in younger people, and a lot of them, you know, make sense. Like, I would be anxious too. But fundamentally, it seems like when we're talking about loneliness, the inability to make friends, it does come down to social media. It does, it does come down to technology. It's like the the sort of online world of fake friends has just completely screwed things up for these kids so that they just don't know how to make real friends anymore. And our producer, Amy, sent us this really fascinating book about sort of how technology um, changes the way that we think about loneliness. And there was this passage that I, that I was reading that just blew my mind when the phone was invented. The sort of advertising for the phone and why everyone had to have a phone. Yeah. The whole point of it was, well, if you have a phone, then you'll no longer be lonely. A phone will make it so that you always you always have a friend. You can always call somebody. Like if you're feeling lonely, you have a friend, you can call someone and you won't be lonely anymore. It's literally the, the antidote to loneliness. And then when people were still lonely, you know, when it didn't actually matter that you could call a friend, people still dealt with loneliness. The sort of psychology of loneliness started to change and it became less about you're lonely because of your social situation. You're lonely because, you know, the job that you have or the, the, the kind of home that you live in. And instead it became, well, no, you're lonely because there's something wrong with you. It's a fault. Like if if you're still lonely and you have a phone, then it's because you're an asshole and nobody likes you. That's the only so explanation. This goes which could also be true. Well, yeah, okay. That's <laughs> so true. this goes to the key question is, have we always been lonely? And is it really so bad to experience loneliness? There's a difference between being alone and being lonely, right? I think there is great benefit to having a life of solitude, of contemplation, of spending time by yourself, of reflection. All of us do that. It's been really beneficial, I think, to our personal and our professional lives to have that space, to create that space. 
loneliness, I think, can probably be a driver uh, in some motivating way. But what we're seeing here is, I think, something different. Because y- your young adulthood is a time of tribe, is a time of community, yeah. is a time of connection. That's what you're supposed to be doing on college campuses. That's what we did. That's what, you know, that's why we, I think, were able to thrive in some particular way. So we need geriatric volunteers to show that's up at it. college campuses and give that's, all these college smart. kids hugs. That's smart. Just it, it hugs, to be bring the their way. walkers. Listen, it used to be the other way. And I think yeah. you're onto something. We can reverse engineer this. We need the world's greatest generation. <laughs> there you <laughs> to quote Tom Brokaw or whoever the fuck Dan Rather to go on to the to USC yeah. like free hugs yeah. from from old people. Please, old people do not show up on college campuses with a sign saying free hugs. Why not? That's how they send you away. Okay, <laughs> this is super interesting because college. I mean, that's the that's where you you make your closest friends. That's where your identity yeah. starts to form. You know and. It's so interesting to me that part of the problem, it seems, if we are kind of tracing it to technology and social media and stuff, that part of the problem that these kids are having is that they spend so much time creating these constructed selves online, right? Selves that can be edited and deleted and, you know, manufactured and massaged. Curated. And present, curated, perfect. Presented in exactly the way that you want it to be presented. And then when you move from the virtual realm to the real realm and, you know, you're messy and you don't say yeah. the right things, yep. you don't get a chance to delete and yep. edit yourself, yep. I could see how that would make you unmoored it would be it would be very difficult to make friends if there's no filter between the two of you but there's another aspect to this about the online reality of today's younger generation and that is and going back to this question about loneliness i don't know that i agree with you varun that that there's a difference between being alone and loneliness because i think that feeling loneliness is part of the human condition and everyone feels lonely for at some period of time in their life and everyone has to struggle with loneliness. I, I did when I was younger. I felt really desperately alone even when around a lot of people. And I think that's okay to an extent. Um, I, it never got me to the brink of suicide or to medication. Um, but it's a part of a, a spiritual uh, truth of we are alone. Uh, we are in these bodies, we have this consciousness floating in space, kind of having the perception of being different and alone and, you know, in our, in our little meat puppet suits uh, going around the world. That's part one. And part two is what I've noticed is that because kids can constantly be distracted, so if they're bored, let's say, because bo- loneliness goes with boredom a little bit, mm-hmm. kids cannot stand to be bored at all. And I couldn't, I hated being bored when I was a kid. And if I had the ability to pull out a phone and to play Angry Birds or watch a YouTube video instead of being bored, I would have been on it all the yes. time. But here you have a generation of kids that have never been alone, never- sat with discomfort and aloneness and boredom, and then tiptoed into a healthy loneliness. To kind of ponder that loneliness of like, I feel so alone and I wonder if I'll ever really connect with someone. And that's a kind of an existential crisis of being a human being. Wait, this is, oh, hold on. I got to riff on this because that is so smart. The truth is, is that because of our phones, we don't ever have to be alone ever again, right? Because you've always got 
Yep. Something or someone. Friends online, yeah. entertainment, so diversion. If you're never alone, then you never learn how to be lonely. Then loneliness is never a good thing. It's always a bad thing. And it just self-perpetuates. Yes. I, I like this idea that loneliness is part of the human condition. This is part of a spiritual process. We all have felt lonely. That helps us build resiliency. There are good aspects to all of all of that, right? Suffering is part of the human condition. Sadness, et cetera, loneliness. We have to combat that. And if we don't, we don't build resiliency. And I do think that even though every year my students are more intelligent, more accomplished, they're brighter, they're harder working, they are less and less resilient, resilient every year. And I think there's something to be said about that. But my concern is that at what point does it become an epidemic? At what point does yeah. it become too much, right? At what point does it become crippling or overwhelming? Not something that forges character, but something that, you know, causes you to drown. And that's where I'm starting to see a shift. I was lonely in college too. Uh, you know, I went across the country. It took, it was really hard to sort of settle into my new college environment, but I was able to do it because uh, I was able to be in community with others. And the social media that our kids were raised on is actually antisocial because it's not happening in community. You are on your phone by yourself. You're solitary. And what we find is that in high school, kids aren't leaving the house anymore. They sit at home and text. They're not dating as much anymore. They're not driving as much anymore. They don't go out and hang out at the mall. They don't build these interpersonal communities. They're all virtual. And because of that, when they get to a place like college where they can build interpersonal communities, they're actually ill-equipped to do so. And we're teaching them how to do it. But I'm stealing ideas from, like, my kids' preschool, you know, coloring book sessions. Like, we put <laughs> yeah. out the coloring books. Kids come flocking, you know, friendship classes, you know. Yeah. But we're so downstream. How do we think upstream? Like, how do we think about the root causes of this? Because by yeah. the time we get them, this is 18 to 22. These are band-aids without actually looking at the structural right. element. Right. My son is 14, almost 15, and really struggled uh, and struggles with electronics. And um, really ideates on playing games and watching videos. And everything is carrot in the stick for him if he gets screen time, basically. And we sent him to the summer camp that was a month-long camping, no electronics. And I'm telling you, he's a different person coming home from that. Sure. Um, one month in the woods without any electronics, he's utterly transformed. And the, the connections he made with those kids are like, like deep heart connections. And it showed him, maybe for the first time, that he could have those relationships without technology mediating them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And without that experience, how does he know how to translate that in future his future life. Rain, I'm going to go on a limb here and guess that you don't get enough fruit and veggies in your diet. Damn straight. I mean, it's hard. I don't. I mean, none of us do. And this year, my goal is to change that. And that's why I'm keeping my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every day. They got my back with delicious food that's good for me and good for the planet. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. And it conveniently stays fresh in your freezer. I just got an entire pack the other day and like there's basically nothing left here. So they got this like 
banana, cashew, oats, and almond chocolate, yeah. like desserty thing. That's like that's like an oat bowl kind of thing, it's, right? It, well, they got the, the dessert version. They've got the oat bowl with the strawberries. They got this kale and sweet potato flatbread. You know, I'm a huge smoothie fan, and they have these these instant smoothies. Like you just pour them in your blender, add a little like oat milk and water and some ice, and Boom, you've just got a, a smoothie and uh, amazing flavors. I had one yesterday. It was incredible. Daily Harvest takes literally minutes to prepare. Never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything. And that goes for everything. They've got so many delicious options for every time of day. Daily Harvest is all about preserving and protecting Earth for current and future generations to come. From their recyclable and compostable packaging to investing in organic farming practices and reducing food waste, you can feel good about the choices you're making physically and for the environment. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com milkshake to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com milkshake for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com milkshake. If I may shift it a little bit, Varun, you have a fascinating background because you grew up Hindu, but you've also had an in-depth study of Buddhism and been in a Buddhist ashram. Monastery. Um, monastery. Yeah, yeah. From that perspective, what's the spiritual solution to this uh, loneliness? And you know, not talking necessarily about electronics, but no. what's what can you bring to that? So I, I think there's two things. One is, of course, mindfulness has become a big buzzword in secular life. Uh, universities, corporations, et cetera. We're running probably the largest mindfulness initiative in American higher education. We're training 7,000 people a year. What's that like? Tell us what so that, what that we, looks like. So we have 50 classes um, throughout the year that are free and open to students. We have um, uh, drop-in groups. We have uh, workshops. We have an app. Um, what I found is that I can't keep up with the demand. I got like 300 kids on the wait list for the self-compassion class. What? No one told them they could be compassionate to themselves. And <laughs> it's like this revelation for them. That's amazing. But what I think mindfulness is so popular on our campus is because we give students permission to turn off their phones. Just like you gave your son permission to mm. not use his phone for a month. It's almost like they need permission because that's their de facto. It's like an appendage, right? 50% of young adults say internet co connectivity is as important to them as food, air, and shelter, right? This is an essential. Wow. Yeah, this is the new, this is Gen Z, right? So it's like fasting. You almost have to have permission or a reason to fast. Otherwise, you're not going to actually do it. The second, though, the most important thing, I think, is something that isn't Buddhist per se, but is connected to all of our faith traditions, and that is just how do you build a community? You know, the most important study on this is the Grant study, um, which is out of Harvard in 1935. It was the longest study of human behavior in history. Uh, in 1935, they started following around 70, uh, 200 undergraduates for 75 years, and they studied these undergraduates to see what conditions lead to human happiness. And they studied salary. They studied height. They studied weight, education, relations, you know, all the sort of things that one would think lead to success. And at the end of their lives, these undergraduates told the researchers that the most important thing for them in their own flourishing was the depth of their loving relationships, period. That was it. All you need is love. That's what the Beatles told us 50 years mm -hmm. ago. How deep are your loving relationships? That's what makes us human. That's what causes us to feel as though we live a life worth leading. 
On a college campus with 50,000 students, 140 countries, 50 states, and 90 religious groups, you would think that that is the ideal place to build community, the ideal place to learn and grow and love each other. But I see it as being much more fragmented than that, partly because it's so hard for students to build a community outside of a virtual one. It seems so obvious. <laughs> the The answer to loneliness is, is community. hang out with people. Yeah, yeah, hang out with people. That's right. Listen, the other thing I'll talk about, and I know we have a particular point of view. It's not a joke, but we have a Baha'i Muslim Hindu sitting in a room together, mm-hmm. uh, is the loss of religion amongst Gen Z. I expect at least almost 50% of my first-year students will not be affiliated with religion. 50%. In 1950, it was 2% of Americans. Now it's 50% of young mm-hmm. adults. That's not changing. We are moving to a society that is less and less religiously affiliated. And historically, religion has been the place which provides community, meaning and purpose, an ethical worldview, a celebration of life events. Um, It's a way to... uh, It's kind of the whole point. Ritual, myth. This is what it means to be human, how to make sense of our experience. I tell students it's okay to walk away from religion, okay to walk away from God, but what are you replacing that with, right? If you walk away from religion, don't walk away from meaning, community, purpose, joy, gratitude, but... We don't have necessarily the infrastructure in this new world of ours to replace religion uh, with anything in a way that makes sense. It, it's kind of, we're in a, a, a test phase right now. We're throwing out a bunch of ideas. Can hip hop be a religion? Can sports be a religion? We're testing these ideas. But uh, I think that's another thing. Um, a recent study I read, which I, I almost couldn't believe, I had to reread it, said that if you have an intergenerational spiritual experience, that means if you go to a Gudvara or a mosque or a synagogue or a church with your parents or grandparents growing up, you are 80% less likely to be depressed as a young adult. So when we have an epidemic of depression uh, on college campuses and almost half of our students are not affiliated with religion, you know, listen, correlation doesn't equal causality, but I see some kind of link. So I've been trying to think about how to recreate a secular kind of structure that replaces formal religion, but gives students what they would otherwise get from those structures. Isn't that what USC football is, though? That's, That's what it is. the I, whole point. I, listen, <laughs> I, 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 when I got to USC, people were like, oh, you're the dean of religious and spiritual life? Well, you should know the real religion on this campus is football. And I was like, ha-ha. Until I went to a game, I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes. This is myth. This is ritual. This is agony and ecstasy. This is you know people with funny hats. A shared know, experience. A shared experience, mm-hmm. intergenerational. Mm-hmm. And you see the Trojan family at its best at a football game. Here's a thought. So I think I think that's very interesting, sort of what the um, solution could possibly be. And I think it's going to be a, a number of things like we've said. But should we just maybe take for granted the fact that we are basically becoming a human race that is just going to be more isolated and more lonely, that this is what we're moving towards? Is this our future? That this is our future? And instead of instead of trying to stop an unstoppable force just learn to deal with it like figure out how to how we deal with this kind of loneliness and you know just yeah, but here's the problem with that Reza I hear where you're coming from but Varun tell me what you were talking about in terms of suicide you know 10% of our students across the country are, have had a thought of suicide over the last year 5% have made a plan 5% so on my campus of 50,000 students on any beautiful sunny day where the you know southern california football games everyone's walking through literally a college brochure of the idyllic experience i got 2500 kids who are thinking about their own death 2500 who have made a plan and when we have suicide when students die by suicide on campuses we have to be concerned about suicidal contagion other students yeah 
this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. The numbers are kind yeah. of intense and, you and overwhelming. And you personally have, have seen that increase and that spike in the number of suicides. You've been called on, right, to uh, go to suicide attempts and I have. I Listen, I've probably intervene. overseen more student memorial services than anyone in the United States over the last 10 years. Jeez. I used to be stoic, you know, I used to be strong and then I had a kid and I can't be anymore. Wow. Every month I'm, we, you know, I'm crying and grieving with a parent. And when that death seem is seemingly preventable, either it's by suicide, homicide, accidental drug overdose, or poor decision-making based on the overconsumption of alcohol, when it's a seemingly preventable death, uh, we have guilt counseling. It's not just grief counseling because other you know students on our community is like they feel guilty that I saw this coming. I should have intervened, right? So uh, I see what the impact is on on humans, on communities, uh, uh, and it's devastating. So how can we become more resistant to loneliness? You need to have. Five people in your life who have your back. You don't need to have a thousand friends online. You need to have five real friends in life who you meet with, who you hang out with, who you can tell anything to. Uh, research tells us that if we have a happy friend, we're 30% more likely to be happy. If our happy friend has a happy friend, we're also more likely to be happy. That there's a force multiplier effect with healthy relationships. People say, I'll show you who you're going to be if you show me your five best friends. I never really knew what that meant, and now I totally see it. I think we have to understand that we can only have about 120 meaningful relationships in our life uh, at any given time. To be perfectly frank, five seems like a tall order. Three. What about three? I, I, th- I, I like, tell my students three. I feel like I've got three. I tell my students three. You got two in this room. <laughs> <laughs> Does your wife count? Because she has no choice. She has to be your friend. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I could say I have three friends that are like, they got my back. Oh. Yeah. Let's get them on the show and see what they say. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Lightning round, life's big questions. Varun, are you ready? Yeah. When do you feel most connected with the universe? Ironically, when I'm alone. When I'm on a bike or on, I'm hiking and I'm with my thoughts and I'm in the world, in nature, when I'm alone. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. Um, it's your soul in reflection. Ooh. That's good. That's a big one. That's a bumper sticker. What is your biggest fear? Inadequacy as a father. What would you say is your life's big question? I think it's always been, who am I? And what do you think is the purpose of your life? I think we're service-driven. Purpose is to be there for others. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? Study Sanskrit. <laughs> what brings you joy? Um, my relationships, especially with my family, but also with my students. I'm in it for the students. What would you want your final meal to be? Indian, maybe from one of my favorite restaurants. Eh, wrong. Fess and June. (laughs) (laughs) What's your hope for the next generation? That they find meaning, purpose, joy, and gratitude in their lives in the same way that we were able to. When was the last time you ugly cried? Ugly cried? What what is that? (laughs) Um, You know, it's been, it's it's been too long, but it was probably with one of our campus tragedies in the last year. Mm. Yeah. Would you like us to make you ugly cry? <laughs> Maybe after this. Uh, what's the one thing you know for sure? I'm not sure. I know anything for sure. That's the right answer. Varun Sony, such uh, an amazing yeah, so honor to talk to you today. And I mean that because this 
issue, anxiety, loneliness, depression, suicidal ideation with young people is just breaking my heart. And yeah. it's breaking hearts all across America. People need to think about this, dig into this, deal with it, live it, ponder it, and get involved. And uh, this conversation is helping that happen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. And thank you for the work you're doing. That was, I have to be honest with you, that that was kind of depressing. It was depressing? Well, all these lonely kids, like kids who don't know how to make friends. It's just, I mean, it depresses the shit out of me. Yeah, and the thing that really sparked my thinking was the fact that there's a lot of discussion around anxiety and depression and even suicide. But the idea that loneliness might be at the root of all of these things, disconnectedness, um, is is really revelatory. Uh, maybe that's the symptom we need to treat. I don't know, but it just, it reminded me of something kind of even more depressing, which is these poor like millennials and Gen Zs who, you know, are saying they don't have any friends. It just gets harder, guys. Make friends now. Because when, when you get older, it's not, it's just not, not going to get any easier to make friends. Get off of social media and make friends. Speaking of that, get on social media and tell us how you make friends. Yes, social media is <laughs> a, is a v- virulent scourge against people connecting with one another. Uh, it's the devil. So what we're asking you to do is get on your social media and uh, write us. Hashtag metaphysical at Rain Wilson at Reza Aslan. We want to hear from you. Hashtag metaphysical. Have you felt lonely? What do you do about it? How do we make friends? How do we make friends later in life? Uh, what can we do to solve this epidemic of loneliness amongst our younger peoples? We are here for you. As you know, uh, when you rate and review on Apple Podcasts, if you leave a life's big question, we will track you down and ask you to come on the show and speak to us. And guess what? We have a very special guest. This may be the guest that has zoomed in from the furthest point away from us on the globe. We had a we had a Glaswegian, remember? Yeah, but but Brazil is farther away than than Scotland, don't you think? Well, maybe. I don't know. Kelly from Brazil, welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for, for calling in. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hello, Kelly from Brazil. You have the least Brazilian name I have ever heard in my life. It's <laughs> Kelly with an I. It sounds like you're an undergrad at Indiana University. Yeah, exactly. Most cheerleaders are named Kelly with an I. How did your parents give you the name Kelly with an I? I don't know. It might be Hollywood influence. Mm. I don't know. <sighs> Kelly McGillis. Mm. Kelly Regis and Kelly. Kelly Clarkson. Kelly, Kelly Clarkson, Clarkson, maybe. All right. What is your question? Okay. My biggest, my life is biggest question is, uh, according to David Attenborough, Attenborough, mm-hmm. the Attenborough, biologist. Attenborough, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Primates, they are not very adapted to living in Arctic lands, cold weather, snow, stuff like that. He said that. Because they evolved in tropical lands, right? Like South America. Sure. So, since we Homo sapiens, we are clearly primates. Uh, the helots, the of the helots type, by the way, wouldn't be smarter or sustainable to limit ourselves to living in tropical lands rather than Arctic or arid 
wetlands zones. What do you think? I mean, it certainly would be more enjoyable. Sure. It's currently like 56, 57 in LA and I'm miserable. Yeah, it's it's freezing out. It is freezing <laughs> outside. It got down it got down into the 40s. It got into the night. 40s, which for Los Angeles. Listen, Kelly, uh, you know, for a good 100,000 years that's what humanity did was just hang around in the scrublands of Africa and then slowly ever so slowly started pushing north and in other directions and um and there was an ice age in there somewhere. Um and yeah, and I don't I don't get it. I don't understand I don't understand humanity because this idea that <laughs> there's tribes living in like Nome, Alaska or Baffin Island and it's freezing cold. Why don't they just sort of like, hey, it's warmer the further south. Let's just go south. And then there's probably a tribe there, but then they just there were there were hardly any people on the planet. I mean, there was like a couple million people on the entire planet. Just keep going south, guys. You don't you don't have to live up there. I don't get it. Reza, please explain. Well, as you know, I moonlight as an evolutionary biologist. Rain. Um, (laughs) That's one of my many, many uh, (laughs) expertise. But look, it's it's interesting that you brought up primates. Like, you're absolutely right. You know, primates uh, evolved, you know, to adapt to a particular kind of environment, which is why they don't do as well in other kinds of environment. But we're homo sapiens are primates. We evolved in the same uh, environment. Shouldn't we... Uh, have a hard time adapting to colder environments, but aha, there's the rub, right? It's that the thing that separates us from primates is that we have that, the social brain, as as it's called, the social brain. Like, mm-hmm. we have the ability to communicate uh, uh, information that allows for adjusting and adapting um, you know, the creation of tools that are necessary to help us to adapt to, uh, you know, whatever situation we find ourselves, be it an environmental situation or a different kind of situation. It's why, like, our communities could have gone from, as Rain said, you know, 100,000 years in which all we are is just our kin group, you know, maybe a dozen people together to suddenly expanding to villages that have thousands and thousands of people, city-states that have tens of thousands of people, because we have the capacity to communicate information that allows for quick adaptation. Like if I discover something that allows me to adapt, I can communicate that thing to another individual in a very rapid way that allows that individual to adapt and so on and so on and so on. And it's like, that's the whole purpose of why we were able to survive in these sort of frigid areas, you know, where Neanderthals were about to die off, you know, completely. Um, Because we had the ability to use our brains to create tools necessary to adapt to whatever environment we found ourselves in. And then, you know, the rest is, as they say, Paleolithic history, right? Then we just kind of went everywhere. And we're like east and west and south. And we're going to like make boats and go into the, you know, tropical regions in the, 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 you know, Polynesia, et cetera, et cetera. And everywhere we went... As one individual learned a new adaptation, they communicated it to another individual and it just kind of spread like wildfire in a way that isn't as endemic to, you know, primates who uh, arose in very similar circumstances and contexts as as we did. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. (laughs) 
Thank you. Now, why much. am I even here? First of all, well Thank said. You. But also, why <laughs> didn't us, these socially brained people go up to the Inuit and say, "Guys, it's way warmer down there. <laughs> you guys, it's yeah, way. That's right. It's way warm. This even sucks. in like Ottawa. Even in Ottawa, it's way warmer than Baffin Island. Come on down. And there's like nuts and berries. What? There's nuts. There are plants. You see that little piece of grass? It's like a bigger than that yeah. plant. And there's nuts and berries. You can just eat off of the plant. Like, yeah. okay, we're out of here. Fuck this ice fishing bullshit. Best thing about nuts and berries, they can't kill you back. That's right. What do you think, Kelly? What, you, you got a, an opinion about this? Yeah, my problem is that we have, a, we have to learn a lot of tree, you know, to keep ourselves safe. Yeah. Arctic lands. So burn, burn tree. It's not sustainable. Yeah, we burn trees. We have to like wear animal skins. And even then it's not doing that well. <laughs> One thing that I do think is super fascinating to this, this might get cut from the episode because it's a bit of a tangent, but I always loved it, is that, you know, we used to teach our kids that Homo sapiens wiped out the Neanderthals, right? That the that Homo sapiens came out from these tropical lands and they had better tools and bigger brains. Uh, they didn't, though. They, they made it. True, they did not have bigger brains. That's an actual, I, I should not have said that. It's true, the Neanderthals had bigger brains, but now we know bigger doesn't necessarily mean more useful, but whatever. The point is that the idea was that, you know, we just kind of slaughtered, Homo sapiens just slaughtered all the Neanderthals. But, but, but we mated with them. But that's true. Rain is right. Now we know that that is false. That's not true. We've been teaching yeah. our kids lies that in reality, what we did is we boned the Neanderthals. We were like, hey, baby. Yeah. They're very fuckable. You know, they're thicker, they're bigger, warmer. Mm. There you go. Maybe that's what mm -hmm. it is, Kelly, is that nice we were haunches. like, I don't know, all these big-bodied men and women. Yes. Why go back down to the tropics? And to this day, women like hairy men. <laughs> to be more sustainable. <laughs> Stop burning so much trees and coal and carbon yeah. dioxide. Talk to your Brazilian friends about stopping burning the Amazon, please. Uh, speaking uh, of burning trees, so. Uh, we we are like diverse, so a lot of people don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. A lot of people don't agree. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the office fans, for example, don't agree with that. Most of them. We should start a office fans to save the Amazon Weirdly enough, the office is really big in Brazil, isn't it? I think so, because Brazil is big, so it's like proportional. And we need to laugh, you know, to fight against anxiety and depression. That's my case, for example. Uh, before we go down a, a, an office rabbit hole, thank you, Kelly. <laughs> I, I thank you guys very much. Listen up, folks. Want more of Life's Big Questions? Find us on the social medias, at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson. And on Twitter at Metamilk Podcast and Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know your life's big questions. We just might explore them on a future episode. And of course, you can always leave those life's big questions on your positive Apple Podcast review. Rain and Reza out. We need to create an app, a friend, make friends app, you know, just friends app. No, no sex. Stuff. We could call it Friendster. Friendster. I love that. Trademark that. Please. Amy, do you, are you on there, Amy? Yes. Can you secure that domain name, please, and that app? Yes, Friendster. Okay, that's a great idea. I love the name. 
Yes. I'm sure nobody's ever used it before. Very catchy. Friendster.net. Thanks again to our guest today, Varun Sony. Till next time. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Joshua Harris. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. It was produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Cradowell, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. How many friends do you have? You know what's funny? I feel like, you know, the older I get, the less time I have for friends. Well, you have so many kids. You have like, you have 11 kids. There's so many damn kids. 